KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. In the early 1900s, tuberculosis was a huge public health crisis. It was widespread and it was deadly. And one of the ways people tried to keep children from getting TB back then was open air schools. Fast forward 100 years to the coronavirus pandemic, and there are some interesting parallels between the public health response back then and what we're trying to do now to stay safe and stay healthy. I wanted to learn more about the open air school movement a century ago. So I called Dr. Cindy Connolly. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and an associate director at the Barbara Bates Center for the Study of the History of Nursing. The reason I'm reaching out is because of a book that you wrote about tuberculosis and how the U.S. tried to save sick children. And I keep thinking about the coronavirus pandemic, and this isn't the first time America's education system had to adapt to an illness or disease. But first, before we kind of get into everything, can you tell me what was going on in the early 1900s with tuberculosis, how bad it was, and what we kind of knew about it? So it was known by all kinds of monikers that really show just how feared it was and how dangerous it was. Um, Some people called it the Great Plague. Some people called it the White Death. It, It was also known as the Great Killer. For most of history, it wasn't really understood that tuberculosis was an infectious disease. In fact, one of the ways that East Coast got rid of Uh, People who had tuberculosis, because they could be, particularly if they were poor, they could be a ward of the state and need to have funds invested in them, was that they gave them a train ticket west to sometimes Colorado, but a lot of times Southern California. So a lot of those Southern California cities were founded along the rail lines where people from the East Coast were arriving with their free ticket and just sort of got off the train. So... But what changed in the late 19th century was the work of uh, French scientist Louis Pasteur, German scientist Robert Koch, who really, between the two of them, demonstrated that the disease that had long been known as consumption was actually an infectious disease. Although the pulmonary form of the disease is the one we're most familiar with today, that TB of the bone also which had been known as Pott's disease and hadn't been realized to even be tuberculosis, was in fact a form of tuberculosis, so that there could be lots of different types of tuberculosis. And that allowed people to really count just how much there was. And so probably in the first decade of the 20th century in Philadelphia, only bacterial pneumonia caused more deaths than tuberculosis. In the 19th century, TB alone was responsible for one in four deaths in the United States. Wow. So how did it come to be that it seemed people being outside were healthier? Was something about factories I've read about and people who work in settings like that were less healthy, maybe more prone to getting it? Is that kind of what was known? What were the different ideas? Sure, that's a great that's a great question. So but we wouldn't have a cure for tuberculosis until we had streptomycin 
in the 1940s and another drug then in the early 1950s, isoniazide. So here was this terrible disease for which there was no cure. But in the mid-19th century, a German scientist realized what really wasn't factory work. He just realized that his patients who spent more time outside, even if they had tuberculosis and if they ate a lot of food because they tended to get very thin because the bacteria would cause fevers and they, and they would have a very high metabolic rate, and so they would lose a lot of weight, that they lived longer and that they didn't die. And so that became sort of the rest cure or the outdoor cure for tuberculosis. And that cure migrated to the United States with the first sanitariums in the Adirondacks by Edward Livingston Trudeau, who went off to the Adirondacks um, after taking care of his sick brother who died of TB, but yet Edward um, Trudeau didn't die. In fact, he got healthier living in the Adirondacks out of doors. And so he built a, a sanitarium for wealthy people. And then New York City ended up building a bunch of sanitariums for poor people to take them from the city and be there. So is that the concept behind, you know, kids have to go to school, there's this terrible disease and this is our solution to getting kids back to school. So the pediatric piece is, to me, the most interesting because in addition to being a historian, I'm also a pediatric nurse. And so when I read about this idea, of course, of having kids considered sickly, having them outside all the time, that sounded really counterintuitive to what um, we suggest today for sick kids. So until the early 20th century, the years from 5 to 15, prime school years, was considered a golden age of immunity to tuberculosis. Most people who died of TB were between the ages of 15 to 34. And so very few kids had active tuberculosis. But a couple of scientific revelations in the first decade of the 20th century completely upended that and changed the whole anti-tuberculosis movement away from treating disease in adults to sort of the best way of preventing disease to be preventing it in kids. And, and here were those inventions. Number one, a number of autopsies by French and German scientists in about 1902, 1903, found that all of these children who had died from presumably not of tuberculosis, so maybe they died because they were hit by a streetcar or because they had diphtheria, but they were actually infected with tuberculosis. So that was a shock to people. And so the idea then became that perhaps a lot of people are, you know, that children are infected, everybody is infected, the thought was, but that kids don't, don't become sick until they're adults. But what really changed the anti-tuberculosis movement was an Austrian pediatrician by the name of Clemens von Pirquet, who invented what is the first tuberculin screening test that most of us get today, the needle under our skin to see if we react to tuberculin. And so he took an orphan, um, and again, a very different era in terms of medical experimentation, and he injected that infant with tuberculin, which is a byproduct of tubercle bacilli culture. And he noted that um, that the child's uh, you know, had a, a red swelling around where he had 
injected. It's a, really a pivotal year because 1908, the United States hosts a big international conference on tuberculosis in Washington. It's really American tuberculosis science coming of age. It's also in 1908, you probably um, have seen, that the first open-air school opens in Providence, Rhode Island. And two female physicians who had been educated at Johns Hopkins set up this open-air school with private funds for the children in the city whose parents had tuberculosis, who they themselves were poor, malnourished, almost all of whom lived in tenements or in very crowded circumstances. And then Boston picked up the idea, Rochester, New York. And by 1911 or 1912, we had the very first one in Philadelphia. It was actually in the, a school that is still standing, the McCall School, which is on South 7th Street, a Philadelphia pediatrician. He was the director of medical inspection of public schools of Philadelphia. And he talks about this brand new building and this brand new school that's being built in a crowded part of the city, the McCall School. And he says, right as this book is being written, and so the book is published in 1913. He's probably writing it in 1911, 1912. And, uh, and then he also talks about another open window school, meaning so, the, and the McCall School, open air school, was on the roof of this new building. And then open window, meaning probably one wall of windows, was built in the Jackson School, which is still there in South Philly, and in the Italian section. So that would have been, a, what he says is the Italian section. So that would have been a, a very poor immigrant section of Philadelphia then. And so those are the first ones in Wow, and and you just kind of explained it a little bit, but open air, you know, we think maybe kids sitting at a picnic table, they're absolutely outside, but how far off from that is like what they actually looked like? So it's not far off at all. So they would be outside and I can, I have pictures of kids playing outside in like their underwear in the winter with snowball fights because the thought was they wanted to get them as much sun exposure as possible, heliotherapy, as much fresh air as possible. In the open air school, they also had extended rest periods. They got a lot of food, so they got fed a lot of food. They rested, then they did a little bit of school. Then the nurse, who was either a school nurse or assigned by the health department or the local private tuberculosis aid society would take their temperature, would monitor their weight, would monitor their exercise, because those were considered the medical therapeutics of the, the time. So I always looked at it as since the best treatment for tuberculosis until antibiotics was considered fresh air therapy and rest, that these physicians and scientists and nurses were reasoning that the best prevention would be to take these um, infected children or at-risk children and give them in school the sort of the treatment for TB during the school day in hopes that that would help build their resistance, prevent them from getting TB. And so they would wear what they call little Eskimo suits that look to me like sleeping bags with hoods. I don't know if you've seen that they would wear mittens and they would sit outside at desks and their teachers, most of the teachers and the nurses and the doctors providing 
tuberculosis care in this era had themselves had had TB, which is, and so this was the only job they could get. Nobody wanted to be taken care of by a nurse or a doctor who had tuberculosis. And so they were often, the they were usually the doctors and nurses staffing tuberculosis sanatoriums, tuberculosis wards. And they had a particular interest, obviously, in it because they themselves had suffered from the, the disease. Same with teachers. I just, I could not imagine winters and I can't believe I know. It, it sounds, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm cold in buildings with just the AC on. So I couldn't, and it, it amazes me how long the concept kind of stuck around. But they did, they last, their heyday was the 1920s and the 1930s. Again, nobody knew how to cure TB, better nutrition, better case finding, uh, you know, a stew of public health measures, and for reasons that we don't quite understand, you know, epidemics tend to run in arcs, as we're seeing with, with COVID, in ways that we don't fully understand. The disease was already on the wane by the time we got um, the first antibiotic treatment for it. But that completely redefined tuberculosis, whether in a child or an adult, from being a chronic infectious disease that could be deadly to one that was treatable as an outpatient, right? You didn't need to go away and live in the mountains or by the sea or go to open air schools after streptomycin. You could just take a pill. And so for a long time, people forgot all about TB. And this idea of open air schools was completely lost. So they were for different a, a different reason than obviously TB and COVID are different diseases, but they were operating on the same premise, and that is an infectious disease without a cure. What you've got to do is to minimize transmission. And we, um, one of the few things we know about COVID is that it is spread less frequently out of doors. And so that was a, a therapeutic for TB and it is considered a potential preventative for COVID. Yeah, I've seen uh, some articles about professors taking classes outside and yes. even everybody now, you know, we've all done outdoor happy hours and all of that hey. stuff. So uh, that's that's crazy to think that just your class, because one of my questions was going to be, have you seen parallels between what's been happening now compared to what you were teaching or anything like that? Can you maybe talk about how TB, again, how, how it's compared to what's going on now with the coronavirus pandemic? I think one of the things we did learn from TB is that a lot of our modern public health rules and regulations are rooted in the campaign against tuberculosis, in case finding, in tracking disease, and in thinking about, you know, even if I don't care about you, my neighbor, um, because it's the moral thing to do, since you might infect me, it's probably a good idea that I make sure that if you're sick or at risk of getting sick, that you get some resources. So, I mean, the thing is, we have, a, in my opinion, although I think the evidence supports that we have a hard time in the United States. Um, you know, we're a very individualistic society relative to other highly industrialized societies. We have weaker we don't have universal health care, for example. We have weaker social supports. We don't have universal 
childcare so that poor women um, can, and it's almost always poor women that we're worried about, not poor men, can work outside the home and know that their children are safe. We don't have a social floor on suffering in terms of what every family is entitled to. And so you might think that has nothing to do with tuberculosis, but it does only in that the solution became rather than giving those poor families resources so that they didn't have to live six to a room in a tenement without a window. The idea was to hopefully give their children some food during the day, give them open air so that they wouldn't get infected. Because we've always been worried in the United States that that some people are not deserving of assistance, but we can always agree that children are deserving. We're sometimes divided on how to get them resources, but, and so that's a way that we can kind of all come together. And the Open Air School offered something for everybody, right? So if you wanted to help poor children, but that you didn't believe in municipal or state support for poor families, you could give money and, you know, see that at least the poorest to the sickliest children were getting some intervention. If you were worried about all those immigrants pouring into the United States, those open-air schools, indeed all American schools, did a lot of Americanization in that era. So there was sort of something for everybody. Most successful social experiments do have that in them. Yeah, and that's a that's a really big social experiment. And as I like the way that you put that, that it is kind of an American thing to focus on kids and... And that, so we can come ar- together around that. I mean, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It just is. But I guess, I mean, the open air schools is such an interesting topic and such an interesting take that America took for tuberculosis. What do you think the legacy for open air schools, what did it help maybe with both health-wise and, as you said, maybe bringing people together to help the kids? Sure. So, again, we don't have good statistics. We can't really ever show how many children didn't get active tuberculosis because they went to an open-air school. The people who supported them claimed that the children gained weight, they had more energy, they were healthier, but perhaps those kids would never have gotten TB anyway, right? It's Today, we would, ha- we would do a randomized controlled trial if we did an experiment like that to be able to see whether the intervention really made a difference. But the science in that era was basically that people would put children in an open-air school and then document how much weight they gained, how much energy they had, and then consider that an improvement not with a control group. And so, but I do think their um, their legacy is a complicated one because, you know, the United States could have chosen to go a different way amidst massive immigration and um, particularly in the urban areas, a, a lot of poverty and a lot of disease, morbidity, mortality from tuberculosis, from other infectious diseases, occupational um, diseases, could have put in place what Europe was doing during that period of time. And that was a more robust social uh, welfare system um, and chose not to, in part, I think, because we defined ourselves in opposition to Europe, right? That In the United States, according to, depending on one's political perspective, either according to American myth 
or um, our, you know, whether you believe it really strongly, American tradition, you know, it, it doesn't matter who I am, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And so, um, and so that I think we did not because there was a lot of ambivalence regarding government, federal, state, and local in the United States. Traditionally, there have been, right? We fund our schools locally. We do not have, you know, federal funding for schools. We don't have universal health insurance, as I said. So that has sort of been the American tradition, you know, and whether you consider that right or wrong depends on your political perspective. And so I think that's its legacy, is a targeted intervention for children considered most at risk, as opposed to thinking about, um, you know, what do all children need? Let's put in place policies for all children. Um, for example, uh, I guess it was more than a couple years ago now, um, 2014, President Obama in his State of the Union speech proposed universal preschool for all American children, cross-class, right? You didn't need to be poor. Um, you could be, you know, any class would be publicly funded. And there was such outcry about that. This was with the government trying to control parents, trying to control families. We don't need this. This isn't the right thing to do. And so that led to a very fragmented approach. For example, cities like Philadelphia, I think either again, creatively in a good way or government overreach enacting that soda tax so that cities would be able to provide things to children most at risk because it wasn't something that we, that we wanted to do as a society. So I do think there's a legacy of well-meaning individuals trying to do something because that as a society, we don't want to enact global laws for cross-population. Yeah, and I mean, we're still learning still just, you know, coming back to coronavirus and we still don't know what the effects of coronavirus are. But what are you paying attention to most when it comes to how the United States is adapting to this virus, whether it's education or not? So I am, again, I'm a pediatric nurse, and so I am really worried about the lack of attention to children. Lack of attention, even in, in May and June, the, lots of discussion about opening bars, but many other people have said not of a lot of thought. Well, if we kept bars closed, if we keep other things closed, then perhaps we'll be able to get children back to school in person um, in the, the the fall. So there was no real. So although there's lots of rhetoric around children, no no politician has ever gotten elected by coming out on an anti-children platform in practice. We don't always act in ways that I think are best for children. The incidence of active COVID-19, and I'm not an expert in COVID-19, but it's been documented to be higher in certainly um, indigent children, children of color, with the thought being that many of their parents are first responders. And so they're getting exposed in a way that other children then are. And so, so what I'm paying attention to is certainly the lack of early attention and focus on children. There are not very many children in clinical trials looking at treatments for COVID. I'm also paying attention, like most other people, with dismay to the politicization of science and how that, that used to sort of be sit outside the, the political sphere, but that now 
wearing a mask is a political statement, which I, I, you know, as a nurse, a healthcare provider, a historian, I find dismaying. And so I, I wish that hadn't happened. And I think it's bad. It's going to be bad for science going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, we started this talking about kids and that's, right. I feel like what we've always come back to. Again, that's one of the things I think that makes epidemics and pandemics so interesting is we come back to the same problems, right? How do you, what are we going to do about infected people? What are we going to do about sick people, particularly if they're children, particularly if they're too poor to take care of themselves? Who's responsible and how are we going to pay for it? And how are we going to buy time until we get a cure? Um, We are living history. Everyone who's alive now is living history. And what I tell my nursing students at Penn is that, you know, as a, as a historian, I've done oral histories of nurses and physicians who were practicing in the 1930s, 1940s. And somebody in 2080 is going to be doing an oral history and say, what was it like being a medical student or entering medical school before COVID and then graduating, nur- you know, nursing school or medical school and then graduating after the epidemic? You know, what? tell me what it was like. And so it, it was, they also, they cleave the you know there's always a before and an uh, and an after and that's uh, again i think it makes them intellectually fascinating you get to see the values and the morals of society play out in in real time in terms of the decisions that get made and have to get made quickly um, and then when you look back it really brings all those things into sharp relief how we thought about social class um, or differences in infectious disease by race ethnicity and what and what we considered to be the right solutions to them and um, hopefully slowly we're getting better with some of those Things. So, you know, Martin Luther King said the arc of the universe bends toward social justice. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we will. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.